This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're going to see with three people who have spent their lives exploring and protecting the world's oceans. The seas generate much of the oxygen we breathe and drive much of the weather we think about when we get dressed every day. But most people know very little about the ocean about below the surface and how it's related to climate change. In the next hour, we'll explore how global warming is impacting the ocean and what you can do about it. We'll also hear tales of drama and intrigue and violence on the high seas, as well as positive stories about marine ecosystems coming back to life. Leading us on this journey are three salty veterans of the sea. Liz Taylor as president of DOER Marine, an Alameda-based company that builds robots and other vehicles for deep-sea exploration. She grew up learning about the sea with her mother, the legendary ocean explorer Sylvia Earle. Peter Wilcox is the former captain of the iconic Greenpeace ship Rainbow Warrior that was sunk by French government agents in 1985. He's the author of the new autobiography, Greenpeace Captain, My Adventures in Protecting the Future of Our Planet. Steve Wilson is director of campaigns at the Story of Stuff, an education and advocacy group based in Berkeley. He sailed over 35,000 nautical miles to four of the big garbage patches in the ocean and lives on a sailboat in the Bay Area. This program is underwritten generously by the Bernard Osher Foundation. Please welcome them to Climate One. Liz Taylor, let's talk, uh, begin with you and tell us about Hydrolab. And it was one of your first experiences in sort of this underwater world. So Hydrolab was a subsea habitat, uh, very basic, basically like underwater camping. And a team of aquanauts, a mixed team, uh, was down about 50, 60 feet in the Bahamas. And my job as a kid, maybe 10, 11 years old, was to man the radio overnight, make sure that everybody was still breathing, and be ready to uh, alert the, alert the uh, surface team if anything went amok. And then during the day to take supplies down to the hydrolabs. So we took some ice cream. We watched Boyle's Law in action when there was only, was only half full at the bottom. Uh, things of that nature, uh, we didn't didn't smuggle any rum down to them, even though they asked. <laughs> but it was great. And so that turned you on to sort of a life of the sea, or did you have any choice? Maybe it was. Well, I was kind of dangerous. thrown in early on, but but uh, told breathe normally underwater, it worked out all right. But the um, but it was interesting. I mean, just spending a, a few weeks there, uh, traveling down every day, you began to recognize the fishes as individuals. Uh, there was a, a barracuda that was always there underneath the surface barge. And just a very big, curious animal, bigger than I was, but not aggressive at all. He just checked everything out, the, kind of the resident watchdog. Fabulous. Uh, Peter Wilcox, you started sailing at six months old, which just terrifies me as a parent. But tell us how <laughs> uh, you started, uh, came from a sailing family, six, uh, six months old. I did. Um, my grandparents were sailors. My father is still a sailor today. Um, 
and I caught the bug at an early age. It's something I've always enjoyed doing. Uh, last year, I sailed 18,000 miles, and I came home, and I went sailing. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, it's, uh, that and sailing for a reason is what, is what makes it so rewarding. And we'll get to some of your stories. Uh, Steve Wilson, you were a surfer and had a seminal moment where you realized that you wanted to focus on, on oceans in an advocacy way. So tell us about that moment when you were surfing. Yeah, I actually started surfing when I was 30 years old on the Oregon coast in this very pristine and beautiful place. The Oregon coast is very remote comparatively to California, and it was this primeval wood. You can't see a human-made object from the lineup. And I came in, my dog was running on the beach, and he seemed distressed, and I thought he might have lost his tennis ball. And I was sort of looking around, and then I noticed just tons and tons of plastic on the beach. And it, what assailed my senses was, was the aesthetic incongruity to the, the natural order there. Not necessarily the environmental implications, but that put me on this journey of working on plastics issues in the ocean for the rest of my life. We'll, we'll get into some of that plastics and uh, exploration and ocean stewardship. Uh, Peter Wilcox, take us to... Uh, the Rainbow Warrior in 1985. You're in Auckland, and you woke up. So tell us what happened then. Well, 1985 was our year of protesting nuclear testing in the Pacific. Uh, We had just come from the Marshall Islands, where we had relocated a group of Marshallese people that had been used by the U.S. military purposely as guinea pigs to test the effects of radioactive fallout. And over the years, a generation from 1955, when the first hydrogen, or the biggest hydrogen bomb, the 20 megaton Bravo shot, was launched, uh, until 1980, which is when they started appealing to leave, they had had increasingly poor health, especially in women's reproductive health issues, where many women had six, seven, eight miscarriages. They had jellyfish babies, which is just what it sounds like. And after, as I said, a generation of this, they appealed to the U.S. and the Marshall's government to move them. They said no. So five years later, when we came with the Rainbow Warrior, we did move them about 150 miles away. After that, we went down to New Zealand to resupply uh, for a trip out to the Polynesia, where the French had been testing nuclear weapons for many years. The French were worried about this, and so they sent a team of soldiers, espionage people, whatever you want to call them, to New Zealand. They sailed in with some explosives. Uh, One night, about the fourth night after we were in, they took two of them, took two of the divers, went across the harbor, tied up on the pier across from us, dove underwater, planted the bombs, swam back, and went back across the harbor. Uh, The people across from across the harbor saw them come in, throw the outboard engine over the side, drag the boat up the beach and leave it there halfway up, and jump into a waiting camper van. And they thought, oh, some kids have stolen a boat again, so they wrote down the number. About two hours later on board the Rainbow Warrior, the the boat shook fantastically. I was asleep in bed. I thought initially that we had been involved with a collision with another ship at sea. When I looked out the lights of the porthole in my cabin to the dock, I could tell that we were safely tied to the dock, but the sounds weren't right, so I got up. About 40 seconds after the bomb went off, I'd made it 20, 30 feet back to the engine room door, and the boat was already 
almost completely flooded. Uh, it was, the water level was two feet below our feet, where it normally mm. should have been 15 or 16 feet, and you couldn't see it. Uh, so my first thought was to go back to the after accommodations where people were rising. The first bomb went off about a minute later. The second bomb went off. It had given our photographer, Fernando Pereira, just enough time to go to his cabin. And the second bomb was directly underneath his cabin. It uh, racked the door, and he drowned in his cabin. I got off on the dock, uh, and there was not anything we could do. Uh, There was tons of diesel fuel floating on the surface. Uh, We were questioned by the police most of the night. They were furious at first. It was only the second act of political terrorism in New Zealand history. Going to New Zealand for us at the time in 1985 felt a bit like coming home because they were about to become a nuclear-free zone. And we felt so welcomed there and and relaxed. What happened then was uh, the two French agents who were masquerading as Swiss tourists, the next day, about 36 hours after the boat had been bombed, returned the camper van to the airport asking for a refund uh, for a day's rental because they had to fly home early because her uncle was sick in Switzerland. Well, there's a big note under the counter. Uh, They were detained by police, interrogated, and put in a hotel room that night and said, look, we're sorry, we'll take you to the airport in the morning. Please feel free to order room service, use the phone, do whatever you want. Just please don't leave the hotel room. So the agents immediately got on the horn, the telephone to Paris, DSEG headquarters, and said, we blew up the boat, it all went cool, but we've been detained, but we'll be home tomorrow. The New Zealand police recorded the whole thing. (laughs) Two days later, they were arraigned, and about a month later, they copped a plea to second-degree murder. Um, Obviously, losing a shipmate is about as bad a thing that can happen uh, on a ship. It's the captain's first priority to keep his crew safe. Uh, and it was, it was a bad day, but all of us on the boat felt in some weird way that if we had scared the government of a first world superpower so badly they would set out to kill us, that we must be doing something right. And uh, myself and another crew member sailed out to Mororoa a couple months later on the Greenpeace sailboat that had been out there many times. We sailed across the 12-mile limit when the French announced that they were going to do a very small, insignificant nuclear test. Uh, were arrested and deported, banned for life from French Polynesia. Eventually, a couple of years later, the French were, were forced, because they wanted their agents back from New Zealand, to uh, arbitrate with Greenpeace and uh, paid us quite a bit of money. But they have never apologized, either to us or the Pereira family. Have one of the agents expressed remorse that he was involved in it? He absolutely did, and I think that was a courageous move on his part. I appreciate his sincerity. I have no doubt. The Pereira family has not accepted his apology, and I don't think it's a matter that for me to say yes or no. They feel it's too little too late uh, that France or he had a responsibility to say something 35 years ago when this happened, 30 years ago. Um, Is there any indication or evidence how far this went in the French government? Yes, absolutely. Um, We learned 20 years after the bombing uh, that it had been approved by President Mitterrand. Uh, It had come right from the top. 
We're talking about sea adventures at Climate One, and that was Peter Wilcox, former captain of the Rainbow Warrior. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm still captain of the Rainbow Warrior. <laughs> still captain. There you go. And there's Rainbow Warriors one, two, and three. Uh, so you're now captain of the number, number three. three, which yeah. is looks fantastic. Thank you. Uh, it's just a funny issue because I've been introduced for 20 years as the former captain of the Rainbow Warrior, and I don't know how it happened, but here I still am. <laughs> they think, they, people yeah, think that it's sunk, and they, there's two others. Perhaps. Liz Taylor, uh, tell us what you're seeing below the sea and the oceans about climate impacts. How is climate change changing the oceans? Well, we're seeing a lot of it happen in terms of the, just the ocean temperatures. We were looking at this, this great bleaching that's going on in the Great Barrier Reef right now. Um, just devastating, about 90% gone of the Great Barrier Reef. It's, it's shocking. Can it come back? There, there's hope that it, parts of it can come back. It depends on how long the surface temperature is sustained at a, at a high rate. Um, with the remotely operated vehicles and human-occupied vehicles that, that we are developing, we're able to go down into deeper water and see if some of these corals are coming back, if they're more resilient where the water is cooler instead of just being at the surface. There's some discussion about transplanting uh, corals from deeper water back into shallower water as temperatures cool, or trying to collect them and then rear them in captivity, the same way that some other endangered species have been saved. Now we're looking at even being able to do that for corals. But, it's, but it is quite shocking to see these sudden changes um, happening. Just you know, We're all witnesses to it. I would like to add to Liz's story that we were down on the Great Barrier Reef three years ago and got a chance to talk to the scientists from Townsville who know coral. And they were hypothesizing that within 15 to 20 years, the waters would be too warm and acidic to support coral growth. And here we are, three years later, with major sections of the reef gone. And that's the one constant that's in climate change, is that you make a prediction... Two or, three later, two or three years later, you can tear it up and start all over again. It's happening faster. Why, does, why is coral so, so important as the base of the food chain? Why is that so important? What is <clears throat> well, it's, I mean, the, the plankton is really the base of the food chain, but the, the coral contributes to that when they spawn. They're, all their little uh, coralettes <laughs> are, are, are waterborne into the, into the planktonic uh, soup that's there. But beyond that, they are a very important barrier to storm damage. They're one of the first lines of defense that we have. So we have all this coastal development. Most of the population lives within 50 miles of the coast uh, around the world. And so if if we're tearing down things like mangroves and coral reefs are dying, that just opens the door for these huge storm surges to to race in much further in than they would have in the past. So the coral reef helps to calm the storm conditions ahead of them reaching the shore. Um, And so they're, they're very critical for that reason. And just the, the myriad of fish that they support, all kinds of different fishes there. And lots of people, subsistence farmers, rely on that fish, uh, so it gets to people pretty quickly. Steve Wilson, what, what is an average American and their lifestyle, what are some of the most impactful things that we do as consumers that get to the oceans? You know, really, uh, I work on plastics in the ocean because I, I like to think of it as the visual evidence of climate change, about 10% of petroleum uh, products go to the production of plastics. Interestingly, with coral, coral is filter feeders and fibers from synthetic clothing that come off in the washing machine. About every load of laundry have about 1,900 fibers uh, going out into uh, the ocean. Uh, Ultimately, 
Coral is choking on this too. So they're, they're kind of getting a one-two punch from acidification and synthetics. And the, the footprint of plastics per capita in the United States is about 326 pounds of plastic per person per year, 50% of which is single-use plastics. So if you want to talk about the most impactful, not only um, uh, problem, but also uh, empowering device, is getting out of single-use plastics, you can literally reduce 50% of your footprint overnight. And we've heard about uh, bag bands, plastic bag bands. I heard from you for the first time about straw bands. So why are uh, plastic straws? Uh, tell us the scale and scope of plastic straws and what's being done about it. Well, San Francisco is sort of leading the way. Um, there may be a measure introduced to ban them. Uh, we as Americans use uh, 500 million of them a day. There's 308 million people in the country. So I don't know if you've had your quota of one and a half straws today, but um, <laughs> that's about how many we use. And why do bars like them so much? Well, it, there's been some research to determine that if you drink your dark and stormy, which is my drink of choice, uh, <laughs> uh, Fitting. that you're going to drink two of them if you have a straw rather than just one. Peter Wilcox... We're talking about, um, you know, banning things. And Greenpeace, is, environmentalists are often thought about as stopping things, stop bags, stop straws. Is that really going to be effective, or is that just kind of a game of whack-a-mole? Oh, geez, I don't know. Uh, you know, listening to these folks to my right, uh, uh, I'm aware that as people on the planet, we don't take good care of the oceans. We don't pay the first attention to them. A farmer living, living at home would never treat his farm the way we treat the oceans. We constantly overfish. We constantly fish a species to decimation, and then we move on to the next one. And Greenpeace believes that the oceans are a resource that need to be shared by everybody and can produce a lot of food for everybody. But when we overfish a species into extinction, we're destroying the resource. And we've done this over and over and over again. Most recently, we have wiped out the tuna by three-quarters of their normal population. And that's not the way to get the most food out of the ocean. But there's no regulations on the high seas, and that's something we desperately need to change. Liz Taylor, is sustainable aquaculture or farming, is there a way, what's the way to do it right in terms of to utilize uh, the ocean's bounty for humans without overdoing it? Well, first of all, we need to stop treating the ocean as a supermarket and a sewer at the same time. That's kind of fundamental. But beyond that, it's really looking at, do we want to continue this kind of trade in global wildlife? Uh, you know, we're, we're shipping fish all around the world. We have tuna that are caught off the coast here or caught elsewhere, and they're shipped overnight to a fish market in Japan. It's a huge carbon footprint. Um, it seems a, a more logical way to fish locally, fish with artisanal methods, uh, hook and line, um, not to have these these massive commercial trawling operations going on. The, the McDonald's filet of fish sandwich supports the largest trawler, a ship more than 400 feet long um, in the Bering Sea that, that just takes metric tons of pollock <laughs> out of the environment. And, you know, how does that affect the other animals that rely upon that food source? I've read that even there's fish caught off the coast of the United Kingdom sent to China for processing, and then back to the U.K. for fish and chips. So that, Right, yeah. so, I mean, the answer is to, to 
know where your fish comes from, know you're a fishmonger, make sure that the methodology used is uh, as low impact as possible. And for the farm fish, um, you know, maybe bring it on shore in these closed systems. Don't, don't be discharging things directly into the ocean or feeding antibiotics to fish that are penned in the ocean. Um, you could be doing it on shore. Peter Wilcox, do you eat fish? I do more and more <laughs> reluctantly every, uh, all the time. Um, I haven't eaten meat for 40 years because uh, I read how President Reagan was signing a special bill every year allowing, allowing beef farmers to use steroids and hormones to grow their beef, yet he was serving organic beef at the White House, so he <laughs> knew better. That made me so mad I gave up on meat. And now I listen to these folks and I realize that even wild-caught fish are created, contain a high number of amount of plastics. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how much longer I will. There was even a report recently about cocaine found in salmon off uh, the coast of Seattle. West. Seattle. Yeah, the NPR report. Right. Uh, Steve Wilson, what did you think about when you heard that story? Well, I was wondering how they, you know, they get up these very rough streams to spawn, <laughs> and now it seems to make sense. <laughs> um, and how about your personal diet? Uh, I don't eat fish, uh, and that largely comes from, you know, when, when you're sailing across an ocean, you often just have a line dragging, you know, if you can catch a dorado or a tuna. And, you know, we would get to these very remote places in the South Pacific with these reef systems, and there'd be no fish. There'd be tons of plastic on the beach, but no fish. And it just... There was there's one in one atoll in the South Pacific called Henderson, which is actually where Herman Melville got the idea for Moby Dick, uh, from chasing uh, a whale there. And and I you know swimming to shore, I was like, this should be Shangri La. This should be the Jacques Cousteau video that I saw when I was a kid, and there was nothing there. We're talking about ocean uh, conservation and exploration in an age of climate change at Climate One. We're talking with Peter Wilcox, captain of the, of the Rainbow Warrior, Greenpeace ship, Liz Taylor, who's an explorer based in Alameda, and Steve Wilson, who's a plastics expert. I want to go to our uh, speed round, lightning round, <laughs> and ask a couple, some quick questions of each of our guests today at Climate One. Steve Wilson, bans on plastic bags are feel-good measures that don't address bigger threats to the ocean. False. Liz Taylor, most... <laughs> you do work with industry, and we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, Liz Taylor, most offshore oil wells are operated safely and responsibly. Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, We'll get to Peter Wilcox's uh, vacation in Russia. Uh, Peter Wilcox, is the food in the Russian jails better or worse than the food in American jails? I, I, fortunately, I don't know. <laughs> I, I haven't know been in that many American jails. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe some of your Greenpeace colleagues here in the audience have. Uh, uh, Peter Wilcox, is Siberia a good place for a vacation? I wasn't in Siberia. I was in uh, Murmansk, which is the only ice-free port Russia has on the northern shore. And I was in St. Petersburg. Okay, so we'll get to that story. Um, this is a w quick word association. If I mention a word, just what pops into your mind first? Don't need to explain it. Just the association is what we're looking for. Uh, Peter Wilcox, SeaWorld. Orcas. Liz Taylor, the actress Liz Taylor. <laughs> Still alive. <laughs> <laughs> 
Peter Wilcox, the Ocean Protection Group Sea Shepherd. Uh, good group. I don't appreciate their uh, sometimes use of violence. Uh, Stiv Wilson, the proposed new coal terminal in Oakland. Bad. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Peter Wilcox, bluefin tuna. Threatened in their existence. Liz Taylor, the U.S. Navy. Uh, they'd like a, a better white front door. <laughs> uh, Peter Wilcox, French food. Excellent. French agents. Not so smart. Okay. That ends our lightning round. How'd they do? I think they did pretty well. Let's give them a <laughs> round for getting through the... Um, who are some of your sea heroes, Liz Taylor? Who are adventurers that you look to, people that are protecting and stewarding the oceans? Well, increasingly, I think we're seeing real uh, heroism from citizen scientists, uh, people that are every day trying to go out and make a positive change, whether they're staging a beach cleanup or they're a sailor that's looking for ghost fishing gear or they're contributing um, to the different NGOs and trying to keep them going and just making good personal choices, educating themselves. And what are some technologies that are enabling them to do that? Well, certainly we're seeing uh, the Internet is a, is a huge thing. You know, we, we worked at, at DOER Marine. We worked for three years with Google on the Google Ocean layer in Google Earth. We converted it from being Google Dirt to being Google Ocean, the whole thing. Because <laughs> it initially so, just had land, not the ocean. Exactly. Okay. The ocean was left out in the beginning. Uh, but we worked with them uh, and with the U.S. Navy. So it was kind of a three-way team with a cooperative research and development agreement. And we brought in partners from around the world to add their content into that platform. And, and I think it's a, something that will continue to grow, that we'll have the ability for more people to add um, their adventures, their observations, and to have this big searchable um, encyclopedia for the, for the world. Could be very powerful. From a part of the world that's kind of uh, off the radar for, for most people, they don't go there. Steve Wilson, Sea Heroes, who are your ocean adventure protection heroes? Well, when I was, I mean, Jacques Cousteau is, that's what really opened my, my brain to this whole other world that ultimately comprises 70% of planet Earth. And I, uh, it's funny, my girlfriend is actually knitting me. Um, uh, six red caps that Jacques Cousteau. So, <laughs> and there will be a requirement on my sailboat that going in and out of port that everybody will have to to wear a, a red Jacques Cousteau cap. <laughs> nice homage to the king. Uh, Peter Wilcox, heroes. Well, there is a French yachtman na- named Eric Taberley who over and over again just did extraordinary things with sailboats. And uh, he's always somebody I've looked up to. Cuba recently opened up, is opening up more so. And uh, Liz Taylor, there's, uh, Cuba is one of the few places hasn't been trampled by tourism, et cetera. Uh, I'd like to hear from any of you if, if that's a place for exciting undersea exploration. There's some, some sea life there that might be less uh, touched by humans than elsewhere in the world. Well, a lot of people are looking to Cuba to see what's going to happen. There's a lot of concern about the opening of the cruise ship industry in there and what's going uh-huh. to happen with discharge from these large vessels. Um, it's very, very pristine at the moment, and will they have the, the, the wisdom and the courage to sustain it in a pristine state, will they, or will they just capitulate to 
kind of capitalism. <laughs> so um, it does represent an opportunity for, again, this sort of a, a, a nursery um, opportunity for corals that have been decimated elsewhere through the Caribbean. And I think it represents uh, opportunities for sustainable tourism with um, just really um, eco-innovation, if you will, looking for new ways we can enjoy these environments without a large footprint. So whether it's highly regulated diving, whether it's diving with small submersibles, um, so we're standing off the reef, but we're able to spend more time at depth. There's a variety of ways it could be done. Peter Wilcox, uh, marine protected areas are one of the, the positive stories in the ocean. There are basically national parks in the oceans, and some of it, uh, people would say that they've actually come back. Some of those areas signed uh, into law by George W. Bush. Uh, do you see that as one of the, the bright hopes in, in the ocean of we can set some areas off limits and maybe they'll, they'll come back? Well, we have to respect the ocean. That's the start. And marine protected areas are an excellent way to do it. We haven't nearly done enough. Uh, we're still decimating the life in the oceans by overfishing. Uh, everything else we do, our activities are not congruent with protecting the ocean. Marine protected areas are a good way to start, but we haven't done nearly enough of them. Liz Taylor, marine protected areas? Well, like you're saying, they, we really need to do a lot more. Uh, one of the goals is, the loftier goals is 20% by 2020 for ocean protection. But, you know, we see marine protected areas, and, and we have a lot of them right along our own coast here, the marine sanctuaries, Cordell Banks, Gulf of the Farallons, um, and yet fishing is still allowed in those areas to some extent. So we really need areas where these animals can just be left alone, and there'll be plenty of fishing outside the boundaries, but we need to spend more time in the ocean directly observing to understand where the real key areas are for breeding, for resting, um, similar to what Ducks Unlimited did on the on the land, where they they went out, they observed, they saw this is where the ducks are breeding. We need to protect these areas, and yet a hunter can still go out and and take a few ducks, but we don't have commercial duck hunting anymore. Steve Wilson, uh, you've been out to the the plastic gyres, uh, these garbage patches. Uh, can they come back to life? You're a plastics expert. Yeah, I mean, this will astonish you, but people talk about the garbage patches as being the final resting place. The plastic will never escape there, and it's there in perpetuity. The good news is it's actually when these gyres rotate. Uh, takes, the North Pacific gyre takes about three years to rotate. spits out about 50% of its contents. That's either going to enter another gyre or wash up on land. So, I mean, hopefully what, what I say is beach cleanup is gyre cleanup. If, if you are capturing that stuff before a surge or a storm puts it back into the ocean you have effectively cleaned the ocean. So the, the key is we need to stop it going in. I mean, the first thing you do when a bathtub is overflowing is you turn off the faucet. And, and that's what we need to do is turn off the spigot, and then the ocean will take care of itself. The, the best thing to do for the ocean, it seems, is to leave it alone, <laughs> and it'll figure itself out. Nature's okay without us. Uh, talk about the microbeads story. Yeah, so I, I spent all this time at sea looking at plastics, and I'm originally from Minnesota, and I grew up sailing. We have 10,000 lakes there, um, but uh, I, I wasn't a, a, a salty dog, as you say. Um, at that point, I was a fresh dog, I guess. Um, but after doing all this, this, this you know, adventure around the world, 
what I realized is, you know, very few people actually have a connection with the, uh, an emotional connection to the, uh, the middle of the ocean. And so, you know, bringing it, you know, bringing it back to my boy Jacques Cousteau, he said, you know, we protect what we love. So I said, let's look at the Great Lakes. Let's see if we find plastics in the Great Lakes. And we found really big concentrations of them. Hitched a ride on a, a, a tall ship out of Erie, Pennsylvania. It was a replica of a War of 1812 brig. So it was, it was actually pretty funny. We were literally hitching a ride, and I would ask the captain if I could throw the trawl in. He's like, oh, we're just actually about to be in a battle reenactment. And I was like, that's why you're dressed funny. Okay, got it. Um, so, um, but we did find these really high concentrations of these plastic beads that were traced back to personal care products, scrubs and toothpaste. And that set, I started a campaign about three and a half years ago to get rid of them. And happy to say, uh, through both uh, California state legislation, which gave us the leverage for uh, federal legislation, uh, Obama signed uh, my bill at uh, the end of 2015. And we have effectively eliminated them from commerce in the Western world. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. There's a growing amount of plastic choking our oceans, and yet we keep making more. Adam Lowry of Method Products says our planet already has all the plastic it needs. His company harvests the plastic from oceans and beaches and recycles it into bottles for its cleaning products. Now, the reason we've done this product is really to raise awareness. Um, We're not trying to solve the ocean plastic problem by taking plastic out of the oceans and making bottles out of it. But by doing that, we're demonstrating that what people say is impossible actually is possible. And I believe taking sort of the first most important step towards uh, addressing the ocean plastic pollution problem. Uh, We gather the plastic for our ocean plastic bottle on the beaches of Hawaii because... It's sort of horrifying, but the beaches of Hawaii actually act as a natural sieve, and they collect the types of plastic that we can use to put back into a recyclable bottle. Like I said, this is really done to raise awareness about the fact that we should use the plastic that's already on the planet. As consumers, we should demand products that come from recycled plastics because it's a solution we have today that works, and it's uh, uh, combined with other things uh, is a solution that uh, I believe is not utilized enough. That's Adam Lowry, co-founder of Method Products, speaking at Climate One in 2014. Now let's join Greg Dalton and our live audience at the Commonwealth Club. We're talking about the oceans and plastics and climate change at Climate One. We're talking with Peter Wilcox, captain of the Rainbow Warrior, Greenpeace ship, Liz Taylor, who's an explorer based in Alameda, and Steve Wilson, who's a plastics expert. Uh, Peter Wilcox, let's go back to uh, your... uh, Arctic vacation. You were on the Arctic sunrise <laughs> in 2013, going out in the Barents Sea after uh, uh, Gazprom, which is a large Russian uh, gas company. Tell us that story. Yeah, as uh, Siberian oil fields wind down, Russia is very interested in maintaining its petroleum exports, which is a huge, big, their biggest export. So they've opened up oil drilling in the Uh, in the Arctic Ocean. Now, the Russian oil industry, as a rule, and this is something that shocked me, spills five times what BP spilled in the Gulf every year, just as a way of doing business. They do not have a good track record. 
you could say that they're about the farthest thing from it. Uh, combine that with what scientists are telling us, that we need to leave fossil fuels in the ground if we're going to do any mitigating of climate change. And I think you'll agree that the idea of the Russians drilling for oil in the most hazardous marine environment possible is not a good idea. We had gone up in 2012 and planted a banner on the rig, taken pictures and come away, and it was no big deal. When we went back in 2013, uh, they immediately started shooting machine guns at us. Not at us, but in the water. We have videos of machine gun bullets landing three, four feet away from an inflatable. The Russian Coast Guard guys came up in their rubber boats and started slashing ours with, with knives. Uh, and they, we got two climbers up the side of this really massive rig. I mean, this rig goes up about 100 feet above the water, and it's solid steel on all sides because they need to protect the pipes and the drilling equipment from the ice. Uh, and these steel walls go right down to the ocean floor, which at that point is about 120 feet deep. And then most of it's filled up with stones to make it just as strong as possible against the ice. But we put a couple climbers up there, and the Coast Guard guys started pulling them way away from the rig and smashing them back into it uh, in a real, real dangerous situation. So they came down and were arrested. Uh, and we spent about the next 36 hours having face-offs with the Russians who wanted us to leave. We didn't want to leave. This rig is in international waters. Now it's inside the Russian EEZ. They have every right internationally to drill for oil in that place. What they're doing wasn't illegal. It was just, in our opinion, not very well guided. Uh, 36 hours after we did the operation, they flew over us with a helicopter. Spesnaz, special forces, abseiled down onto the deck. The Russian Spesnaz guys don't wear any insignia. They wear balaclavas, and they're a little scary at first. They rounded all the crew up and uh, pushed the crew all into a couple cabins, searched them, searched all the cabins, stole everybody's liquor, and immediately got <laughs> wildly hammered that night. So we had a dozen Spetsnaz guys running around drunk as skunks while we were supposedly uh, being arrested. The next morning, they, started, they towed us the four-day tow to Murmansk. And up to that point, it all felt pretty much like another day at the office. We've been arrested before. We've had this before. It just felt, to me, very deja vu. We got into Murmansk, and the first surprise was an embassy. Everybody's embassy officials came out. The American one came into my cabin and said, oh, I think you guys are in trouble. And I said, nah, I ain't worried about it. So I hope you're right. And he left. A few minutes later, the uh, soldiers told us that uh, we were going to go into shore for a couple hours. Maybe we should bring a toothbrush. We, that's all we'd have to bring. So we went into the investigator's office, and the first thing they told us was we were getting done for piracy, which in Russia is 10 to 15 years in jail. Now, the way the Russian judicial system works is that once you're put in uh, detention, there's a 99.99% chance you'll be found guilty at trial. The trial's pretty much of a rubber stamp. Uh, just to finish off your detention before you start your prison sentence. So them telling us that we were going to be spending 10 to 15 years in Russia and we better start studying Russia because we'd need it when we got to the work camps was not very reassuring. Uh, and it was a month before I was able to meet with a lawyer or contact my wife, Maggie, at home to find out what was going on. The food was not very good, but your friends can send you food 
into the detention center, which is an unusual part about the Russian system. So once we got our supply lines set up, we, we did all right. And we started getting some clothes sent because nobody had enough. After a month, or I guess about five weeks, the charges, they added the charges of hooliganism to our piracy thing. They have no way of taking away the piracy charge. The mechanism just doesn't exist, as does, neither does the mechanism for receiving bail money. Um, they just don't do that in Russia. Uh, six weeks after we were detained, we were transferred down to St. Petersburg, where I got a chance to spend some time in the, Europe's oldest jail, which was built in 1860, called the Kresge. It wasn't a bad place. Two weeks later, we had to have another detention hearing, and that's where we were given bail. Uh, We were held under city arrest in St. Petersburg for a month. And finally, the Duma passed a amnesty, which uh, was also what was used to kick Pussy Riot out of jail. Although I have to say, in their case, being the really incredibly strong women they were, they wouldn't leave. They had been in jail for 20 months. They only had four months to go. They didn't want amnesty, which confers that you had done something wrong in the first place. We, on the other hand, were like, no problem. I'm ready. Thank you very much. Um, they threw them out of jail, physically threw them out of jail. Uh, I didn't have to be thrown out. But uh, I think the person in Moscow who decided to have us arrested in the first place knew that the amnesty was going to be coming up. It was something the Russians do every 10 years uh, to celebrate their new constitution after the fall of the Soviet Union. And Sochi was, the Olympics were coming up. They didn't want us in jail for the Olympics. But I think it was their way of sending us a message that we had better no longer mess with their ambitions to do more oil exploration in the Arctic. I'm not sure what our plans will be for the future. If somebody had asked me before I left that, you know, you might go to jail for a couple months, but you'll radically improve the level of the campaign, that more people will become aware of the dangers of drilling for oil, not only in the Arctic, but anywhere, I'd say, hey, well, that's part of the deal. That's, that's what we do. If somebody had said, well, you might go to jail for 10 to 15 years, I'd pull the covers back over and wave goodbye and say, no, that's not, not, not in my plan. But I'm quite willing to take those risks. I'm quite willing to spend a couple months in jail because I think the threat of climate change, which is we're already seeing, as we've described tonight, is so real. I've got two children, ages 21 and 24, and almost 33. Um, that, that's what gets me up in the morning. I'm not at all, I don't at all regret doing what we did. Uh, I would do it again if I knew it was only going to be two months because of what we're facing. What's your next action? What's Rainbow? Um... <laughs> Peter Wilcox is uh, captain of the Rainbow Warrior, Greenpeace Rainbow Warrior. What's your next action? Where are you going next? Right. I, ex- I expect now to meet the boat in Malta beginning of August and then go to uh, Lebanon and Turkey to do climate change, which probably means anti-coal work. We were there in Turkey th- two or three years ago at all blends in after a while, um, where we helped a small village fight off a coal-fired power plant that was attempting to bulldoze their olive groves, which would have killed the whole village of 150 people, so they could build another coal-fired plant. And because of the Greenpeace support from the office in Istanbul, who provided lawyers, witnesses, support, 
in one of the actions I've been most proud of in, in years, we stopped that coal plant from, from bulldozing the olive groves and, and closing down the village. And I suspect it will be more actions like that that we'll be doing when we go back this fall. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, Steve, I'd like to ask you about the plastics. A little while back, there was some young kid, a a brilliant kid, who supposedly invented a machine that was going to scoop it all up. Uh, So I have two questions. One, is some of the plastic gone to the bottom of the ocean, and is it going to stay there forever? Or is is it going to be eaten by the fish? And how bad is it in the food chain? And then um, the other question is, how does all that plastic get in the ocean? Where is it coming from? Cruise ships, or is it blowing offshore, or coming out of rivers and into the ocean? Thank you for the question. Steve Wilson. Well, luckily, Liz is inventing machines to go get it all off the bottom. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, the, the sad truth is a lot of this, pla- half the plastics we use sink. So we don't really have much data on what's on the bottom of the ocean. Um, in Liz's work, she was talking earlier about seeing a lot of this stuff uh, down there, um, both at depth and in nearshore environments. Uh, with regard to how it gets there, this is really a story of, of death by a thousand cuts. It's every river, it's every stream, uh, it's every cigarette butt. I mean, there's seven and a half billion people on the planet, and, and you know they're using a lot of plastic. And some of it escapes the waste stream, especially in developing countries. We're working very hard with a, an international team to develop a strategy for five Southeast Asian countries that account for about 80% of what goes into the ocean because of poor waste management infrastructure. Um, so I'm, I'm very hopeful that this is going to be really successful. we got some really interesting zero-waste models um, by, by creating value to the plastic at the end of life from a recycling standpoint. With regard to cleaning it up, it, I, you know, any, of, any of us on, on this panel can tell you it's really hard to explain how big the ocean actually is. It, it's really, 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 really big. And, um, and, you know, I mean, you get out there and you're like, I'm two weeks away from land. Uh, no helicopter could carry enough fuel to come and save us right now. Uh, you know, there's nothing, you know, we are, we are an island onto ourselves and totally reliant. And, and, and that's how big and that's how widespread the problem is. And so I think unless we turn it off, unless we turn the spigot off and we, we capture the stuff before it gets into the ocean, it's going to be a dog chasing its tail, no matter how um, good this technology works or not. But to, to give you a, a, a quick example, 95% by count of plastics in the ocean are smaller than a grain of rice. The kid from, from uh, the Netherlands, who, Boy and Slat, who, who is talking about cleaning this stuff up, his devices aren't designed to capture any of that. So really what we, you know, we're talking about maybe 5% of the problem. But, you know, when you're talking about plastics this big, there's a lot of sea life that is this big. Like most sea life uh, is, you know, 50% of fish in the ocean by weight are this size or bigger. So you're going to catch a lot of bycatch if you try and seen the ocean for plastics. And 
to me, it's just it's a it's not the right strategy. You need to get at the root of the problem, which is the plastics going in in the first place. Let's have our next question at Climate One. Welcome. I wanted to ask Ms. Taylor to expand a bit on the uh, the few words that you said about Cuba. It sounds so promising, but is there is there work being done? Are there people there who are already working on this? It sounds like it will be wonderful if it works, but it sounds like it's going to take an awful lot of work. Well, it is going to take a lot of work and, and dedicated effort. Uh, there are groups that have been going to Cuba. Um, you know, we, those of us in the United States have been prohibited from going there for a long time, but there's a lot of other countries that have been going there already for a long time and trying to get good stewardship in place. Um, but now we're seeing some of the, the Gulf of Mexico, the Heart Research Institute, um, some of the other institutional groups that have been really kind of forming bonds with the Cuban government for a long time, and they're, they're very concerned with maintaining the pristine nature of that area. Um, so I think, I think although there is a lot of work to do and agreements to be made, it's all going to be about getting the local people to understand and the same with any marine protected area. It's all about getting the local people to understand the value of what they've got and that they are really going to enjoy sustained tourism, sustained uh, bottom line benefit if they look after pristine, intact environments versus these trash areas that no one wants to go to. Um, I've thought for a long time that instead of having sort of the, uh, the seafood watch card, that we should have the, the watch card for places we want to visit that are doing good jobs and you know, have those kind of validated somehow. This is an area that's got marine protection, they've got enforcement, they've got sustainable fisheries, and choose where you spend your tourism dollars. Don't, you know, don't take it to a place that's going to support shark finning and um, in just bad stewardship. Liz Taylor is president of DOR Marine, a company in Alameda that builds an, uh, deep sea exploration vehicles and explores the deep oceans. Let's go to our next question at Climate One. Thanks. Um, the three of you touch and go into the ocean almost, I would say, pretty much on a daily basis. Uh, do you have any suggestions about people at home, maybe from flyover states who don't necessarily get to see the ocean on a daily basis, about how they can be- get more involved and more impactful? Well, I think Liz that, Taylor. yeah, I think everyone has the ability to be very impactful, whether it's a decision to, uh, you know, tear out their lawn and put in native plants, whether it's a decision to um, just make those choices. The single-use plastic is by far, I think, the largest uh, choice that people can make, whether they live in a completely landlocked area. If you have your your soda bottle and it goes into a a lake, and then it goes to the creek, and then it goes to the stream, and it goes down river. It's going to get to the ocean in due course. So every choice we make every day, uh, we have that that opportunity to make a difference. And how would you explain to a person in a flyover state how the ocean matters to their life if they seem so far from it? Why does it matter? Well, I've heard it. I've heard it said many times in my own household. Do we like to breathe? <laughs> Uh, you know, that's the, what it comes down to. The, the, the plankton and the oceans are generating more oxygen than the rainforests. And we, we really need to look after them um, together. Let's go to our next question. Thank you. Uh, hi, this is for, for Liz. With the, uh, the, China, the Chinese economic slowdown, they've been closing down a lot of uh, seafood processing units. Um, do you see that as an opportunity to improve the localization of, um, of seafood? from Alaska, from 
other ports in America? Well, I think we'd like to see 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 life differently. I don't like the red lobsters seafood differently. I like the sea life differently. Um, but I think if we encourage, again, encourage tourism to the areas where fishermen are doing a good job locally and, and not really supporting these, these vast extractive uh, fisheries, but, but looking after the place and doing a, a credible job, that that's, those are the areas we want to see um, supported. And you know, aquaculture has a role in it. Sustainable fisheries has a role in it. I think it's mostly the, the large strip mining activities that go on around the world that we want to back away from and being able to really look and see where you know you see this little package of fish in the market it looks like a little package of chicken in the market there's it's this disassociation we don't really understand what has gone into that to create that animal we don't eat a 20 year old chicken but we think nothing of eating a 20 year old orange ruffy so <laughs> or a 50 year old or a 50 ruffy. or 100 year old orange ruffy right. so we need to look at those aspects and think about it We've been talking a lot about uh, extraction of living organisms from the oceans. Uh, Liz Taylor, I want to talk about mineral extraction. There's a bit of a <laughs> gold rush going on in the ocean. So tell us about that and, and how that's playing out, and particularly with China and the geopolitics of that. The deep sea mining issue is, is tremendous. And of course, it's below the surface, so we don't really think about it. Everybody sees the beautiful surface of the ocean, the sun setting, rising, uh, the big seas we deal with. <laughs> But what goes on below, uh, there's a huge rush at the moment, particularly as oil and gas kind of slows down a little bit. Uh, we're looking at going and mining uh, these, these deep-sea vents, these areas where we've recently seen just on these live streams these very robust colonies of crabs and unique mussels and all kinds of animals that live around these, these chimneys that are just spewing uh, deep minerals from the crust of the earth in deep water. Um, China now has the deepest ocean presence in the world. They have a manned submarine that can go to 7,000 meters. They're working on a full ocean depth submarine. We, in the United States, spent $50 million on one submarine that now goes no deeper than it did before that we spent $50 million. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just, it's incredible that all around the world we have countries that are making investments, not for the right reasons, but to lay claim to these deep sea minerals to fuel our cell phones, um, and really what's going to happen. We're not doing the environmental research or impacts reports we would do on the land in the deep sea because it's out of sight. So we need to be there in person on a regular basis a lot more. And it's not really regulated, and the U.S. won't sign the law of the sea, so it's kind of, (laughs) right. We have one more audience question. Welcome. Yeah, uh, Michael Stocker, Ocean Conservation Research. I really appreciate you guys' uh, love of the ocean, how you expressed it in your lives. So it's really a... Encouraging. Uh, a little extension on what you're talking about, Liz, in terms of the industrialization of the sea. Uh, I really want to highlight that and maybe get some of your comments about it. Uh, it's not just deep sea mining, but also offshore uh, uh, energy industries, uh, extraction industries for fossil fuel, but also uh, large uh, wind farm productions. These are huge industrial-scale factories. They're building uh, refineries on the bottom of the ocean. They're using a lot of underwater communication systems that are all acoustic. The ocean is an acoustic environment, and the ocean is getting increasingly noisier, not just from shipping, but also from industry out there. I wonder if you guys could uh, comment a little bit about that. Particular, yeah. So let's and pick up on, on wind farms. People think of clean energy as a good thing. We need to get off fossil fuels, but, oh, wind farms could be bad. Well, <laughs> the wind farms, I mean, certainly a cleaner alternative. Uh, the installation is very similar to an oil and gas uh, 
platform. It could potentially be a repurposing of some existing platforms, could be converted to a combination of solar and, and wind, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, they make kind of a nice artificial reef over time. Um, probably a better thing than trying to take them out in some cases because they've been heavily colonized by animals, so may not want to, to cut them off. Um, but, you know, there's trade-offs in every, every way, but in general, the ocean is incredibly noisy at this moment in time. If you just look on, again, going back to, to Google Earth or these other search engines, you can track all the ocean ships going across the planet, and, you just, and it's just like, it's like watching the airplanes going across the planet. It's just stripes everywhere, these tracks going back and forth, and these um, enormously loud propellers coming away. Steve Wilson, some people might say, well, it's there. It's a resource to be used for humans. What's wrong with mining the oceans just like we mine the land? If it can be done responsibly, people want their cell phones. People want this high-consumption life. Yeah, I mean, I think what, what it, we, we live in a fundamental paradox. We live in a, in a linear system, a finite system with finite amount of resources. Yet we have an economic system that supports exponential growth. It's, it's a paradox in and of itself. The, the idea of sustainability is, it's, it's not the sort of hippie mantra that I think it's, it's often made out to be by the right. It's actually looking at what can we do and what can we not do. And we can fish some, we can burn some things that emit carbon. The issue is that we are now at this point where we, we, we gain this divine power from the Industrial Revolution, but we did not gain the divine wisdom on how to wield that power. And right now, I think we're bearing that consequence. And, and so we're playing catch-up to figure out you know, w- what the Earth can sustain and what it cannot. And eventually, it will happen. If, if we don't kill ourselves in the process, it will happen because it's, it's necessary. And, you know, I don't even think of it as a political issue. It's like, you know, what uh, what Peter said earlier is like it's it's happening. It's there and it's present. Um, Climate change is real. If if we want to survive as a species, we are going to have to adapt. Um, That's bottom line. We have to end our conversation with these three heroes of the sea. Peter Wilcox, captain of the Greenpeace Rainbow Warrior, Liz Taylor, President of Doer Marine, DOER Marine in Alameda, and Steve Wilson with Story of Stuff and a Sailor. Please thank them for coming here to Climate One. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.